Welcome to the Boulder Bassoon Quartet Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Michael. Nice to be back. I'm Kent. I'm Ethan. And I'm Brian. And today is a very special day. You guys know why today is a special day? Wednesday, no. March 25th? No, it's not really Wednesday, March 25th. This is coming out on Wednesday, March whatever, but it's not actually today as we're recording it. This is like one of those shams, like the Tonight Show. Everybody thinks it actually is recorded at 11 p.m. or whatever. Wow, no, we're actually it's... acknowledging it, though. I thought it was just one of those unspoken rules. <laughs> unspoken rules of the Hollywood business, of which we are a part. A huge part, an integral part. People come up to us daily, and they're like, how do you guys hold it together? All of entertainment is just hinging on the folded bassoon quartet. How do you not crack under the pressure? That's so weird. <laughs> Uh, anyway, today is actually March 14th. Anybody? Crickets. Pi Day? Pi Day! It is Pi Day. Oh. Yes. And it, to be more specific, it's 2015. So I, aren't the first like four decimal places 1415? I believe so. It's so it's 31415. <laughs> a Pi Day that occurs only once every 100 years. What a special day, folks. We're so glad you're sharing it with us. <laughs> you know, pi is, I'm not like a mathematician, obviously, but I just read that it's an infinite number, and as such, every number you could ever conceive of is contained inside the decimal points. So your birthday is in there, your phone number is in there. If you were to shuffle up a deck of cards and make that a, a number, that would be in there. That Consecutively? Means, yeah. Huh. Isn't that crazy? Interesting. It also means if we were to take rushing through the sudden rain and analyze that the way you would analyze like serial music and you give each note a number and all that kind of stuff, we would find that in pi. Whoa. That's Whoa, surreal. Man. Whoa. So anyway, we are recording this on pi day, but it's going to uh, hit the airwaves, so to speak, on Wednesday, March 18th. And that... Uh, is a very busy day for us so as you're listening to this we might actually be performing at the dairy center in boulder or at the cu pendulum series at cu boulder uh, next week we have a really special event coming up on saturday march 28th the uh as part of boulder arts week the boulder bassoon quartet will be performing at the boulder piano gallery with a very special guest dr rika narimoto she will be joining us all the way from Japan, and she and her very own Thomas Kent Hurd will be uh, revealing how it is that they, as composers, turn their inspirations into actual music. Uh, this will be a free event, thanks to some funding from the Boulder Arts Commission, and we highly encourage you to come check it out, even if you don't live in this state. No excuses, you gotta be there. This is gonna be absolutely awesome. Uh, I have a ton of questions for Dr. Narimoto, I think we all do. The piece that she wrote for us is really intriguing and really cool and full of mysterious stuff. And lots of notes. Many, many notes. And rhythmic complexities. And what I find so fascinating is the way all this outlandish stuff really works so well in painting a picture that we can all relate to. So anyway, that's again on Saturday, March 28th, 2.30 p.m. at the Boulder Piano Gallery. Uh, all the details, of course, are on our website, boulderbassoons.com. So in our previous episode, we started talking about important moments, um, listening to the bassoon that made us realize it's capable of more than just going boom, 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 boom in band. Kent revealed why he's always playing way up in the upper extremes of the bassoon. 
So what about you, Staples? <laughs> well, um, I, I can think of a few different a few different times that were pretty significant. Um, one of them is a similar type story to Kent's where I had a teacher who gave me a recording and it had just kind of a smattering of all different um, kinds of great bassoonists. There was Klaus Tuneman playing Vivaldi and that was that was one of those moments where I figured out the bassoon could sound good. Uh, <laughs> That's important too. <laughs> because you know when you're in high school you just you don't sound very good. It's um, I think it's so important especially for double reed players to listen to recordings and even more importantly to listen to live professionals play their instruments because for the oboe and for the bassoon it's so difficult to make that thing sound good when you're learning yeah. it's not like the piano or the harp or percussion where you just mm -hmm. hit the thing and boom there's a professional sound right off the bat we have like it's a full body <laughs> endeavor to yeah. get our instrument to make noise and then to turn that noise into something that sounds good takes a lot of time and a lot of practice and a lot of trial and error and expertise and all this kind of stuff yeah. Um, and if you don't get that sound in your ear, you're not going to know <laughs> what you're missing out on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there was one, so that was one was hearing the recording and the flip side that happened in high school was I took a lesson from the, um, somebody in the, uh, Colorado symphony at the time. Oh, who's that? The, uh, I was afraid you were going to ask that. <laughs> um, <laughs> he, he used to be the the second chair and then he I think now he plays in Utah um, hmm. yeah he was only there for like a year oh. uh, a particular particular year he had the spot and then I uh, not to derail your your thing here, but while I'm thinking about you know I mentioned before that for Christmas Cody and I got each other record players right and we've been using them and it's been a lot of fun and we had some time to kill the other day we went into this place in Denver called Wax Tracks oh yeah huge record store they got a lot of stuff in there and we were leafing through their very large classical collection, and we found a record featuring the Denver Symphony, not the Colorado wow. Symphony, it's from the Denver 70s. Symphony. Wow. The Denver Symphony, and they recorded a Chopin concerto and something by Hinastera with a singer. I haven't listened to that one yet, but I listened to the Chopin concerto. Sound good. It's a good hmm. sound in orchestra. Wow. And since it was from the early 70s, it still had that kind of old school intense vibrato you know like kind of fast vibrato and stuff mm. unfortunately the jacket and everything it, it even has an insert but it doesn't say who's in the orchestra mm. so i don't know i don't know who it might be what kind of project it'd be to research into that i'd love to find out down. i'm glad we got the disc it sounds really cool and it's some music that I, i'm not familiar with mm. and just the idea that it's you know the local guys yeah it's pretty neat so for quite a while there was a guy named stan scheller he played second bassoon there he recently he retired in like 2005 or 6 from the orchestra and he was at dazzle that night wasn't he yeah he saw us play at dazzle right. and he told me then this fall of 2014 he said that he, he's retiring from even the small gigs hmm. um and then there's a contra player named marvin feinsmith and he's got a pretty illustrious career he actually, he has a website. I forgot what it's called. But, um, on his website, he's got this photo of a letter. And it says, to whom it may concern, this is a letter of recommendation for Marvin Feinsmith. He's one of the most musical musicians or something that I've ever had the pleasure of working with. Signed, Leonard Bernstein. Oh, oh nice. wow. Isn't that awesome? Dang. Yeah. So anyway, hmm. sorry. No, that's all right. Uh, 
Yeah, so that was that was one very interesting lesson because he um, he was really nice. He gave me a, a free lesson, which was cool. Whoa. And then he he played a mildy um, a mildy study, and it was just one of those things that I'd always heard and and played a little bit at that point. But it never, you know, it's just a, a study, and most people don't really make it sound very good. <laughs> it's just not super great musical stuff right usually just treat an etude like all right it's homework i gotta gotta do this yeah but the way he played that was one of those eye-opening moments of like this is how you should study music you know try to make music with everything you play because somehow he pulled some music out of that thing and um it's really good do you remember if he played a scale study or he played a scale study this was the first scale study so it wasn't even a concert study so to let you know, in case you're not somehow you're not <laughs> so somehow familiar with the, the music of Mildy, uh, in in the 1800s, this guy named something Mildy, <laughs> I don't remember, uh, he wrote a whole bunch of stuff for bassoon, scale studies, which are fairly dry, boring, but very valuable technical studies where you develop all of your technique, um, and then he also wrote some concert studies, and those those pieces really are worthy of being performed in a recital they're very musical and interesting and fun that's really uh, quite a what's the opposite of an insult yeah. a compliment that's quite a compliment <laughs> for you to give this this guy to take a scale yeah. study and turn it into something musically impressive yeah well he yeah so he did that and then he explained what he did to get ready for auditions and he said he would play through the entire 25 scale studies whoa um and he and if he could get through those Without, I, I don't know if he said he, had, he couldn't make a certain amount of mistakes or if he had anything like that, but just to go through them, he said if he could get through those and feel okay, feel comfortable, then he felt like he was ready to take an audition. Probably why he won. Feel okay in the sense of like feel, my chops are okay? Or yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. So feel like, exactly. Feel like he had been practicing enough and, uh, and his hmm. chops were in good shape. And and then just feel I think generally like he could get around the instrument, which uh, you sure you can, can. <laughs> if you can play through twenty five scale studies. Wow, you can. good for him. So yeah, and that was the same lesson where I was I think I was a junior in high school and and the first thing he asked was, Is there anything other than music that sounds even vaguely interesting to you? <laughs> <laughs> in terms of a job? Yeah. Because he couldn't recommend that I do music unless there was just absolutely nothing else out there. <laughs> I've heard that a couple of times from different people that they tell their students, like, you know, obviously playing music is great, but for a job, if there's anything else you could possibly do, go do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> huh. Yeah. So that that was one of those really eye-opening moments in a lot of ways, but certainly hearing him play. Um, well, how about that? I wouldn't have expected a mildy to be yeah. an answer to Ken's question. <laughs> that's interesting, though. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. So, so that there was, I think that was probably the first, um, the first big moment. And then there was one in college that I thought of that made me conceptualize of the instrument differently after I've been playing it for a while, and that was the the Nuccio, Otmar Nuccio variations on a theme Pag- Paganini. Interesting. And um, w- in what way did it make you think of the instrument differently? Do you remember um, who played it, by the way? Was it George? It was George, yeah, yeah. When George played that. Um, it just, I think it made me think partially of just like modern music a little differently because I had thought of, oh, anything that's composed relatively recently is way abstract and out there and like doesn't really have a melody. And uh, and this was not that at all. It was very, 
melodic and something you could really wrap your head around. Um, so that was one thing. And then it was, it was the first time that I had heard that, um, the sense of the bassoon being like a really agile instrument used in a way that was like, that I thought was a little more than like a, a, I don't know, a joke or kind of like a, or like a Baroque thing. Yeah. Like a Baroque thing. It was a solo, it was a soloistic way of jumping octaves really quickly that made sense. So... Oh yeah! That, wow, interesting choices. Yeah, both yeah. your choices. I would not. I yeah. wouldn't have guessed like the Nucio or the Mildy. I think those are the two. I mean, there's other stuff along the way. Paul Hansen, of course, was. I mean, yeah. reading through his studies were actually very enlightening in that whole idea of like playing in a high register, because all of his studies would always incorporate right. the entire range of the instrument, mm-hmm. and it would just be like. A perpetual thing you had to learn to play up there if you were going to play his his method book paul hansen has a book and it's full of very interesting and um demanding studies he's got a couple of good stories where he would he went to the san francisco conservatory and i think one of his stories was like he was warming up outside of his teacher's office waiting for his lesson to begin and his teacher was like what are you playing and it was something that Paul just made up. I think he was playing a, a C major triad throughout the full range of the instrument, but he would add in a flat nine. Yeah. So you'd have a C, C sharp, E, G, C, C sharp, all the way up and down. Yeah. And that sounds cool. It sounds really interesting. And so he would he developed all this and created a book. And the second edition of the book, he actually wrote out... Um, the melody and his improv solo for a couple of tunes yeah. like subtle demons, which we've played in a previous podcast and some other tunes. There are some duets in there that are awesome. It's a really good book, really interesting way to tackle technique. So instead of just playing their normal scales and arpeggios, it's like pentatonic scales. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's something where you go through the cycle of fifths in an unusual way and unusual time right. signatures. It's right. good. It's good stuff. Yeah. This episode of the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast is brought to you by Forrest's Music and Barton Kane. At Forrest's Music, you can find every item, every accessory, every kind of instrument that any double reed player could ever need. Forrest'sMusic.com Barton Kane has a wide variety available, a variety of shapes profiles and they even have an artist series. It's easy, it's simple, it's high quality. It's bartonkane.com. Um, well, for myself, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I was fortunate that my teachers had me listening to CDs pretty early on and my parents and grandparents and aunts and everybody, they were very encouraging and supportive. And so for Christmas gifts, I would often get like a bassoon CD or something and I would listen to that. So I was, I heard the Vivaldi concertos pretty early on and like, you know, it might've been Dag Jensen actually. Oh, okay. Um, He's good. And I remember like in sixth grade or something, my 
private teacher saying like, isn't that just like the quintessential bassoon sound? And I'm like, oh, I guess so. <laughs> if you say so, I don't have any other, you know, thing to compare it to. Yeah. And as I had mentioned before, a big part of the reason I kept uh, going from one musical event to the next was in hopes of playing some John Williams music. Right. <laughs> and I would listen to like Star Wars and Close Encounters and they would have some interesting bassoon parts. Um, and then in eighth grade, I think it was, the recording of the John Williams bassoon concerto came out with Judy LeClaire, principal of the New York Phil. And so I remember getting that disc and my brother was home with me. We put it in the CD player and we turned it on while playing like uh, Star Wars Trivial Pursuit or something. I don't know, some board game. And of course I was expecting Star Wars on the bassoon. And that concerto is nothing like Star Wars. The stuff that John Williams has written for concertos and concert music is very much unlike his film music. Right. You can hear it's John Williams. You can hear some tendencies, but it's, yeah, it's not the same kind of music. How much of his non-film score stuff have you listened to? The bassoon concerto, I've heard a tuba concerto that he did. That one's kind of... That I, that's like family friendly. It's uh, oh, okay. It's got a melody. You can tap your toe to it. It's kind of goofy. Occasionally, <laughs> it's not always like that. Uh, I mean, compared to his other concert stuff, it, a lot of so much of his concert stuff is quite serious and like thick. I've heard the the piece that he wrote for the new uh, auditorium in L.A. Oh, the Disney soundings. Yeah. It's um, very interesting piece. That's a cool one because he took... So the L.A. Concert Hall, the Disney Concert Hall, is made by Frank Gehry, the architect, and it's you know one of those very abstract-looking buildings. It's all stainless steel or whatever it is, and it's these sweeping, sloping, curved pieces of metal. And John Williams took one of those pieces of metal and used it to actually make noise. They bowed it like a, a bowed instrument. They hit it. I forgot which one. Hmm. And so he incorporated that into the, the music. And there's this little five-note theme that happens through it. And they took that and they used that for the bell in the lobby when it's time to notify you that the piece is about to start. Like, yeah. finish your wine and get in there, you know. Um, so I want to go there to, to hear that someday. But yeah, that's, that's a very, you know, it's kind of an abstract piece. Um, his bassoon concerto, his horn concerto, his violin concerto, they all have references to trees, which is an interesting thing. Hmm. So his bassoon concerto is called The Five Sacred Trees. It's five movements, and each movement represents a different tree. But what it really represents is that centuries ago, in ancient like Celtic times, these people would, I think monks or priests, would write letters to, for lack of a better way of putting it, rival monks or priests <laughs> and each letter was considered a tree or something hmm. i'm confused about the whole thing so it's a combination of like this tree represents or has a connection to this kind of spirit or god or something right. and so the first movement is this big towering oak tree and the second movement is this kind of twisted tree associated with witches or something and it goes on like that so listening to this as an eighth grader expecting very accessible movie music i was like what is this nonsense this is just <laughs> noise for the sake of noise and i had never heard anybody sound like judy leclerc before and yeah. she had a especially at that time a very bright mm -hmm. tone 
Um, looking back on it, I like it a lot. Somebody's mentioned that she's sensed, uh, she's changed her tone and it's a little bit warmer, a little bit more normal. And the very unique sound that she had before was really captivating. So since it was John Williams and I was a big fan, I kept listening to it like there's got to be something in here that I can understand. <laughs> and as I played more music and as I became more accustomed to 20th century music and weird stuff, mm-hmm. um, I started to like it more and more. So I guess that was a, I, I made that <laughs> a watershed moment. It, it didn't hit me like a ton <laughs> of jokes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to the point where I started playing it and I used it for a recital and I used it for concerto competitions. And like you said that you played so well for that Weber on Dante and Hungarian Rondo, but then the judge was like, this is a dumb piece. Yeah. Um, I think that judges would listen to my piece, or not my piece, I, judges would listen to the Five Sacred Trees and they're, they're not familiar with it, of course. And they would say, I don't understand what this is, especially with a piano reduction. You lose so much of the colorful mm-hmm. orchestration. Because that's yeah. a big orchestra. Huge, a huge orchestra, orchestra. Yeah. yeah. And he's got you know a really good way of orchestrating it all. And you lose so much with the piano. So I think that even if I were to play everything perfectly, um, they wouldn't really consider the piece. Plus, you'd have to pay a lot of money to rent the music. And who knows if the orchestra would be up for it at a college level. I don't, it's, it sounds like a difficult piece. Hmm. A couple of years ago, just a few years ago, um, the Colorado Symphony performed it. And Chad, the principal bassoonist, mm-hmm. he just totally knocked it out of the park. He sounded hmm. phenomenal. Cool. And I've, I've played the piece. I heard the Buffalo Phil play it. I heard, I heard some other orchestra play it as well. And I don't think anybody's ever played that fourth movement, which is a crazy nonsensical movement as well together as the Colorado Symphony did. Hmm. Like they made it sound like it's it has sense and structure to it. <laughs> That's the really abstract movement. Yeah, it's a very abstract movement. It represents a battle between the trees and the, okay. the percussion does this effect where it sounds like twigs snapping and it's pretty cool. Yeah. But it's the kind of thing where the meter changes every other measure there's no real melody to lock onto, no sense of pulse. It's crazy. Um, and they made it sound very, you know, like it just locks together easily, which is quite an accomplishment. Hmm. So there's that. I don't know. Along the way, I know that I listened to like Rite of Spring and other pieces. And I guess I don't recall anything ever hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, wow, I never would have guessed the bassoon can do that. All right. I think I, I heard enough of this stuff early on. That I was like, yeah, you can do that, sure. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. So I got um, a jazz bassoon CD, but it wasn't Paul Hansen. And I thought, eh, <laughs> yeah, right. it wasn't impressive. Uh, the guy did not have good control over the instrument itself. And so that kind of, like, the tone would wobble and pitch would wobble and notes would crack. Do you remember who this was? That's not important right now. Okay. <laughs> I will say that I, I've since heard this person live uh-huh. and way different. Totally awesome. Oh, okay. Yeah, he sounds fantastic. The only other thing I can think of is actually playing with a professional bassoonist in an orchestra and how that tone is so different than what you hear yeah. from the audience or on a recording even. Like maybe that's actually why Judy Leclerc's sound and the recording seems so bright uh, because she's built for a big orchestra and a big hall. 
Mm-hmm. And up close, that sound is bright and buzzy and kind of ugly in a sense. Mm-hmm. But that sound carries out through the orchestra and mellows out over that distance. And when you hear it in the audience, it sounds great. Well, there you have it. If, As a listener, if you are a, uh, a parent of a bassoonist or a spouse of a bassoonist, or if you, if you happen to know somebody who plays an instrument at all, consider getting them a recording that they don't have because it just might be a watershed moment for them, something very inspiring. Something to consider might be from the opposite shore. <laughs> the first album by the Boulder Bassoon Quartet. That's an excellent suggestion. <laughs> yes, a wide assortment of music. We are in the midst of a big run of concerts. Today is Wednesday, March 18th. And we actually have two performances today, and we have another one coming up on Monday at the Arapahoe Library, and then we have a big, very awesome special event on Saturday the 28th at the Boulder Piano Gallery as part of Boulder Arts Week, and this is with our visiting guest composer, Dr. Rika Narimoto. It's a free event thanks to funding from the Boulder Arts Commission, and you'll get to take a sneak peek at how composers come up with their material, which should be a very interesting thing. Dr. Narimoto is a very unique and interesting composer. So we're all uh, very much looking forward to seeing what we're in in store for. On Sunday the 29th, we'll be playing at the Estes Park Music Festival, which is always a delight. So we hope to see you at one of our upcoming shows. More information about our concerts is available at boulderbassoons.com and on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, so to close things out, what uh, what piece do you think we should listen to to wrap this up? Choices are Five Sacred Trees, Lucio, or Mildy. Anybody ever record a <laughs> Mildy? Oh, jeez. You can't go wrong with the Five Sacred Trees. Yeah, that would right. like that. Here's a selection from John Williams' Bassoon Concerto, The Five Sacred Trees. Mm-hmm. 